Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU as always. My co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We're back at the bookstore, live in front of an actual real live audience. Delighted to have them all here and a really exciting book to discuss. Who have we been reading for the month of September? We've been reading Alexandra Kleeman with her new book, Something New Under the Sun, new in paperback. We're very excited to have Alexandra here. I've wanted to get her here for a long time. I knew she had roots in Boulder, so um, I was happy to find out that she's back for about a year, I think. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Alexandra, for being our guest at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so happy to be back here. I have roots in this store, I feel. I've spent, I don't know how many hundreds of hours here, um, but until this day, I never realized there are offices up there, and someone could probably have watched me being very indecisive over my book choice. <laughs> well, we are delighted to have you here instead of a, as a book consumer, as a book writer, and we're going to talk about your new book, your latest book, that had me so thirsty. I mean, the idea of thirst and water just ran through this entire book, and, and we're going to dig into some of those themes. But I have to say, I was very well hydrated by the end of the reading because <laughs> I kept having to chug water. Because this is, it's set on two coasts, but primarily in California. And we've got our protagonist, who's this 40 uh, something writer from the East Coast having somewhat of a midlife crisis, it seems, but has gone to California, to LA, as his book has been optioned mm -hmm. for a film. But while he's out there, we see really a, a dystopian future that's actually the reality right now. California is on fire, so we've got this backdrop of all the fires. But also, California has run out of actual water, and instead we have this synthetic WATR, W-A-T slash R corporation, uh, manufactured water out there. So take us through I mean, is it fair to describe it as a dystopian future or is this really, hey guys, this is the reality we're actually living in, wake up. Yeah, you know, that that's an open question for me too. I um, set out going, I'm going to write a near future novel. The near future is this innervated spot, I think, where um, we can recognize our own world. It doesn't seem so far from us to see the strange things happening that happen in the near future, um, but we have room to, you know, really, sense what's going on and make it matter. Um, but as I started writing it, you know, I was trying to cast pretty far into the future and I found um, uh, as I went into the editing process that the news was um, uh, stealing some of my ideas, you know. <laughs> I was trying to outrun what I saw in the newspapers and um, there's so many eerie echoes, I think. Um, I know that in my book, water trucks deliver water directly to people's houses and pump it into their basements. And then um, I read the same thing was happening in Mendocino County last summer. So, you know, um, what's near future? What's far future? What's present? I feel like all of these things are swirling <laughs> and, and um, sort of vortexing around us. When the novel opens, the water is just kind of a, a background thing, almost like the, the um, fires. Yeah. But then it becomes a vehicle through which you can explore many more things, it seems like. And I recently heard an interview with Jennifer Egan, and she talked about her new book, which had this consciousness cube. And somehow that device opened up the narrative in all different ways. Did you find that happening when you were writing about this? Because it feels like it starts off slow, not the novel, but the, the idea of this synthetic water, and then it really, you seem like you run with it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, um, I'm really fascinated by this feeling that I feel like I'm, I'm having on a semi-regular basis now, where 
I think I'm just immersed in my life. I'm dealing with my own personal, you know, worries about my career, worries about um, my time management, and then suddenly an emergency shoves that right out of the way. Um, it's this feeling of displacement that's almost tectonic, like an earthquake or something. And so when I started to write this novel, I thought of it as two tectonic plates. Um, one, a Hollywood story with our sort of main characters trying to make it, and another that's more dystopian, more science fictional, um, coming up and colliding. Uh, yeah, but, but I think um, one of the pleasures for me of, uh, of reading fiction is seeing things surface and become important in the story that I didn't know were going to become um, foregrounded in the first place. So you talked about the Hollywood story. Take us through that. Um, you've got a great character in Cassidy Carter, who's kind of a child star, and then turned troublemaker. And uh, you know, and, and the novel opens with her this video of her beating somebody over the head with a hypoallergenic laundry <laughs> detergent bottle. So, <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was one of the great openings. Um, so talk about her character and what role she plays, because it's in some ways. Again, almost like uh, the synthetic water kind of sneaks up on the reader and becomes a much bigger thing than you expect. Her character ends up becoming really a central character when you think she's just going to be kind of this off on the fringe free character at the beginning. Yeah, Cassidy is my favorite character in the whole book. And, um, you know, I, like many other people in my generation, grew up watching Lindsay Lohan sort of. Um, be the most prominent child star in Hollywood and then have this sort of um, very spectacular, very overanalyzed fall. Um, and, and so I've always wondered what her experience really was like during those years. And so Cassidy is my character who gets to um, have some of um, that same celebrity arc, that fall from grace, but I actually get to peek inside how she's feeling, how she processed these things, and why she wants to react in such a way. Like um, her viral moment that we meet her in, uh, she's um, surprised by a paparazzi when doing some sort of normal errands or shoplifting in a store, and she goes nuts. Um, and that's something that, you know, I kind of admire, I think. <laughs> um, you know, I've been very conditioned, I think, to soak in and, and hold inside sort of. Um, what bothers me about the world, and she absolutely won't do it. So to have a character who feels ready to lean into that, um, you know, it, it's it's a little bit um, repulsive, and it's also sort of very freeing to watch and to write. I think. Well, Cassidy's character is very interesting because we hear about her as a child star. She played this very famous sort of uh, kid detective, and her detective skills actually come in useful when she's Cassidy because she and the, um, the, the writer of this film who's, you know, relocated to Los Angeles sort of start on this uh, investigation as to what's going on behind this water and these other things are going on and various different nefarious things and I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition but the theme I saw throughout her was that she's looking for authenticity. She refuses to drink the synthetic water and yet she's surrounded by fakeness all the time. And that there's really 
really light-hearted moments where you see, you know, the fakeness of Hollywood. And one of it is around her nose. She's patented her nose because all these people were going to plastic surgery and saying, I want Cassidy's nose. So she's like, I need to, you know, get some money off of that. So that's obviously something. I don't know if body parts are being patented, but I know celebrity culture right now has led to this massive growth, especially for young women in, in plastic surgery. So was that a kind of a... A lampooning of Hollywood and celebrity culture you wanted to take on as well? Yeah, definitely a lot of that. And I think that um, the way Hollywood and celebrity culture functions is like a little funhouse mirror of the way our own culture functions, the way we're expected to um, be plastic and become one kind of person um, in our job time and then another kind of person when we leave. Um, we really blur those lines between who we are and who we're expected to be. Um, so, you know, Cassie is someone, I think, who's been asked to be plastic so many times, asked to embody whatever um, the director tells her, whatever the role tells her, whatever the um, product she's supposed to advertise um, requires of her. And she's just decided she's not going to take it anymore. She draws the line at drinking this synthetic water that she feels instinctively there's something wrong with. Um, but it takes it takes the book to figure out that there's something really wrong with it. We're going to tread lightly and not give away any any spoilers because it does on on you know reveal itself throughout. But um, I loved how you know she was suspicious of that. But in terms of the juxtaposition with the fakeness of what's happening in Hollywood and the fires, we hear then from Patrick, who's the writer. His family are, are back in the East Coast and they're having a completely different experience. His wife and daughter, and in many ways, especially the wife, she was the the real character, she was the center in terms of consciousness, mm. you know, the moral center potentially of, of the book, even though she's a little bit peripheral. And they're on this retreat, they go to this retreat on the East Coast to, to really deal with the, the climate grief that they're dealing with. And it's such a juxtaposition between the kind of frivolous, you know, nature of what's happening in Hollywood, albeit the fires and the synthetic water. But then when we hear about this retreat and the climate grief and how people are being so, um, they're in mourning, literally, for what's happening. I, I just find that so stark and, and really put in sharp relief everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, um you know, one of the questions I was chewing on when I was writing this was um, uh, how do we feel for, how do we care about, and how do we make climate change real to ourselves in our own minds? Because um, on the one hand, we know it's happening, we believe it's happening, and more and more we can see these traces of it happening. But there's something about reading the numbers and statistics in the paper that really can, can fail to drive it home. You both believe and you feel at a distance from your own belief. Um, and, and so I really wanted Patrick's wife, Allison, to be this person who's trying to understand what's going on from a distance. They're communicating over the phone all throughout this book. Um, and and they're, um, uh, they're trying to understand one another but their physical situations are so far apart, it's difficult for Allison to really believe, like, are there really fires burning all over this place? If so, like, why aren't people panicking? Why isn't more happening? Um, and uh, uh, the one chapter I spend with Allison is, was my favorite to write because I think that she worries about, about a lot of the same things that I do. <laughs> you know, I thought you know, Allison is an interesting character, but even there I felt like you were you were kind of lampooning that retreat. You know, at the one point, they, every morning they have this more, they have this ritual where they, they mourn three climate disasters that happened, like some animal went extinct or 
the glacier melted all the way. And Allison, you know, feels this grief deeply. And so she asks the woman who leads the morning, like, how do you figure out what you're going to say? You know, what's the criteria? She wants to know. And the woman's like, I, I just do three things, just three things. Like, there's not really a criteria. So I thought it was almost like a holier-than-thou thing that she had fallen for. But I would think she wasn't going to fall for it much longer if we went past the book ended, I think. She would have yeah. been out of there. Yeah, and I mean, it's, um, you know, Allison's impasses and her dissatisfactions with that place and, and this way of dealing with climate grief are sort of my own, too, I think, because it's, um, uh, it's, it's better to be in a place where you don't have this cognitive dissonance between what you think is happening to the world and how everyone else seems to be perceiving the world. But at the same time, like, she's aware or her daughters, especially, where that's a very escapist place to be, that they're sheltering themselves from the real conditions, and and that their um, uh, their privilege is basically allowing this to happen. So, um, you know, there are no answers there. I think like. More so than in previous things I've written, I let the characters fan out and, and try different um, ways of living in the world, and, and I watch them to see if one of them works, because then I'll do that one. <laughs> I really like the daughter, Nora, who, who's at this retreat with, with her mom, and she's had it with adults. You know, she's just yeah. done, as, as the other kids at the retreat seem to be as well. We don't really hear about them. In a way, it reminds me of the youth climate activists that we have now. They're just, they've just had it with the BS that everybody has, you know, harnessed them with, yeah. you know. And she has this real awareness that they're bearing witness almost at the end of the world. I mean, what do you do when you're reading off a list of uh, species that are going extinct every single morning? You know, what, what do we do with that information, yeah. you know, and their kids? Yeah. Did, did you harness or try to harness any of that youth activism that we're seeing exploding around the world and their frustration? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, like the kids these days, I feel they see things so clearly. <laughs> um, they don't need to sort of pull back the veil of what they've been taught every time. Um, and uh, to me, Nora, Allison, and Patrick Sauter is really that. She. Um, sees that feeling different about the situation isn't the same thing as making the situation different and and she wants more but she's still a kid and now she's in a different like maybe slightly more amenable situation but you can still feel that there is this friction between her and her surroundings so um, I, I'm really interested in that and I think the book I would love to have been able to peer into or the chapter would have been love to have been able to see and write is what she does after the far end of this book, 20 years of the future. <laughs> if there's a 20 years yeah. in the future. If there is. <laughs> so, um, Patrick is, as we've mentioned, he's a writer and he's in LA and his job ends up being ferrying around Cassidy. So like almost an odd couple match. And um, you talk a lot about driving in this book and I, I'm hoping you can read a passage for us about that. But you know, it's, it's set in Southern California, and I feel like a quarter of the book, maybe, or some, maybe I'm exaggerating, this takes place in vans and cars and different automobiles. So maybe talk about the love of driving or the necessity of driving and, um, and read us a small passage. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, one of my frustrations with a lot of, um, you know, literature fiction written in LA is they don't spend enough time in the car. When I'm in LA, I am always in the car. And I think there's something um, 
wonderful about fiction, the way we can cut out all of these boring moments that we'd like to skip over, but in, in that same way, we're not being true to the essence of that place, which is being in a very hot car and looking out at the other cars around you. <laughs> so um, this little section is um, Patrick in the car driving to do an errand, but he's having to take a big detour because there are wildfires all over the place. To avoid the clogged red arteries in his navigation app, Patrick detours through the San Fernando Valley past the brickish, brownish roofs of Santa Clarita's subdivisions, cutting back down onto a smaller highway sleep steeply bounded by strips of dust-sided cliff. Some combination of heat, stress, and cheap mass-produced food has altered the moisture balance of his body. He feels the loss of saliva every time he breathes in the breathes in the stiff, hot air inside the van, invisibly tinged with the smoke of the wildfires still gnawing at the dry flank of Thousand Oaks, Agora Hills, Topanga Canyon. A thin slick of life evaporates from him with each breath. There's a bloom of drab smoke to his left and a river somewhere in that direction, too. He can see it on the little map on his phone, twisting and turning in miniatures as he takes the curves of the road. Somewhere beyond view, the brush is burning in the bright daylight, orange scraps of flame dulled by the sunlight. The sound of small life fleeing from the fire, scurrying toward more fire elsewhere. Terrible, definitely. But it's not really an emergency, he thinks, putting on his signal and shifting, if you can drive around it. An emergency would be everywhere you looked, inescapable. Some long-submerged animal intelligence would recognize it with fierce instinct. In an emergency, the mind would not drift aimlessly from daydream to distraction, as his did now, in search of something to grasp. He attempts to conjure the image of his wife and daughter, but it won't hold firm. Their bodies bent close together have an unreal waver, and with their backs turned toward his longing gaze, he can't make out their faces, the faces he should know so well. They're in the garden, bent together over the same spot, pushing soil into a mound with their bare, pale hands. But he can't see what they're seeing. He's missing the most important part. The background flickers, subsumed by a blankness with no color. How can he miss them, his family, if he can't even remember them clearly? That's author Alexandra Kleeman reading from her latest novel, Something New Under the Sun. And we're live at the Boulder Bookstore for the Radio Book Club. Memory is a huge theme through all of this. It's actually an integral part of the plot, so we're not going to dig into it too much. But this idea that people are just forgetting and that they're also just not having a grasp on reality. And I love that line just jumped out at me. I have it all highlighted in my book about it's not an emergency if you can drive around it. And that seems to be the current mindset that we're in right now with the climate crisis, because I was reading about how um, in Britain, um, weather forecasters, you know, the meteorologists on TV were getting abuse for, uh, it, they had the recent, you know, really record-breaking heat wave over there, 40 degrees centigrade, triple digits, unheard of before. And in fairness to the meteorologists who often get a stick for never talking about the climate crisis, most of them were saying, this is the climate crisis, this is what we're living through. And instead of people going, oh my gosh, you're right, they were getting a torrent of abuse for pointing out the obvious. And they were saying they've never experienced that before. And it's just this bizarre situation where, okay, well, let's just drive around this particular emergency and pretend it's not happening and just adjust our grasp on reality. 
it's so bizarre what's going on. It's all hiding in plain sight. And yet, you know, well, you write about it so well in the book. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we have so many ways of coping with the inconvenience of emergency. It's true. And um, so many ways, too, of turning our attention away to other things. I think the the most appealing option, the first one that presents itself is often to look away from it and then try to see something else, think about something else that'll make you feel differently. Um, but we're getting to the point, I think, where it's no longer possible to drive all the way around it or the road you would have taken is also cut off for some other reason. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I think, when um, disaster becomes something more collective and impossible to sort of recontextualize. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I loved about the book is this kind of back and forth, like, Things are just horrible. There's fires. There's synthetic water. The, the, even the film they're trying to make is falling apart, right? And yet, there's such moments of levity in the book. And I love, like, when you get into, you have a whole section where you talk about all of, of uh, uh, Cassidy's movies. Like, I was wondering if you could talk about something. You must have had great fun, I would think, writing, coming up with these movies. And um, the teen president, I think, was one of them. And, yeah. And, and you even have a speech that the team president gives, which I actually think ties in with the book, you know, you know, with the theme, with the connections and everything. But how much fun was it to come up with that backstory? You, I just thought, as I was reading, I thought, oh, she's just having a great time. It, it's so much fun. I mean, um, uh, for those who've read my first novel, also there are also um, made-up cartoons, made-up movies. I. Um, I do watch quite a bit of TV, and I I love the particular feelings and affects that go with um, these sorts of movies that are kind of foundational to you when you're growing up. They're like um, the essence of of um, you know how you want to be a hero, how you want to be someone in your community, um, what's possible in the world, what we can try to do, um, and. Uh, we tend to think we've grown out of those feelings, but I think they're still there in a lot of our popular culture made for all different ages. So um, one of my favorite ones was this one um, uh, where uh, Cassidy plays um, a first daughter whose um, uh, father and the other people in the line of presidential succession all get food poisoning, and suddenly she's elevated to the position through a strange, and, and she gets to start making the country what she wants it to be, and she teaches, um, you know, the antagonistic um, minority whip to skateboard and things like that. Um, and, and I think it's silly, but I think there are real longings sort of um, embedded in these sorts of movies. And then there's this whole online community of people who are obsessed with her TV show when she's the kid detective, Cassie Keane, who hyper-analyze every tiny little element of the show looking for clues or conspiracies. And she ends up meeting you know, one of them in, in her quest to find out what's going on with what are. What was your inspiration for that? I mean, obviously, there's a, we're awash with conspiracy theories now. But around a kid's TV show, I thought that was just an interesting premise. I probably took some inspiration from being one of those actual people trying to figure out what was going on with the new Twin Peaks season. <laughs> I spent so much time on the message boards and I thought if I spend enough time here, surely someone will know. Everyone's putting their minds toward it. Um, but uh, y you know, part of the fun is just chewing on the question and trying to, you know, um, 
seeing other people flex their analytical muscles and finding their explanation really convincing until suddenly you realize, oh no, that's totally ridiculous. That's not what the show is about. Um, so uh, one of my favorite um, things about writing that world is these two camps that sort of um, form. And some of them believe that there was a big reveal that the show was building up to that was going to change, like the change your idea of the whole story. And others believe that um, the show is actually hinting toward a real life crime, like an oil spill <laughs> or something. And if you can only figure out the exact area, they'll be able to bring people to justice there. So, you know, um, uh, real feelings, wanting justice, wanting to uncover what's really going on, channeled through these fictional characters. Like, I think that's a, a very real parasocial thing that I definitely participated in myself. I've often wondered what the writers of these things that get hyperanalyzed like that feel, where they're like, that was literally filler, three sentences, and people have written entire books now about why this bluebird was on the whatever, and this, that, and the other. I mean, have you ever had that reaction from a reader who really want to hyperanalyze this you know, part of your writing that you're like, no, that wasn't it at all. Yeah, I mean, it's the most fun, sort of. Um, I do read my Goodreads. Um, I lurk on my Goodreads. And I love it when someone has um, a question about something. They're like, was this a clue? And I was like, no, that was just, you know, a physical detail, a bit of world building. Um, but it came to life for that person, you know? So whenever your story starts to escape you, that's when I feel like it's really alive. And, and you almost can just sit back and watch it go. The Goodreads doesn't frighten you. Some authors don't want to go on Goodreads. They're like, I don't want to get slammed. Or, but you're, you're able to take, if you see a negative thing, how do you react to that? Or, you know, oh, what, what happens in your head? Yeah, you, you know, my husband doesn't think I should go on it. Um, he doesn't see why it would be good for me. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I feel like if you've ever been in a writing workshop with a not so great social dynamic, you can handle anything on Goodreads. You can soak it all in. <laughs> in the book, one of, so we've talked about Patrick, the writer, and Cassidy quite a bit. So they get together and they're kind of investigating it. And, at and they're in a van. And I couldn't help but think of Scooby-Doo a little bit. <laughs> like, it's definitely like this kind of like, and they're kind of meeting like these, the evil scientists at one point. And um, so, you know, how, how much did you want to kind of get into that campiness of like a Scooby-Doo kind of setup? A absolutely. Um, I love, I love Scooby-Doo. I love Veronica Mars. I love all of these um, shows that want to channel this um, let's, let's get in there and fix it or let's get in there and solve it energy. Um, and uh, I think that uh, when we think about how we relate to you know, problems that really exist now, how are we going to uncover them? How are we going to address them? Like, um, it's still some of that energy, the feeling that individuals can band together and do something that, that keeps us going. Um, it's, it's campy. It's fictional, it's pop culture, but it's also, um, you know, a valuable emotional bit in our arsenal. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun to riff off those things, too, I think. And um, some of my favorite moments were just writing um, scenes from Cassie Carter's uh, Cassie Keene Kid Detective TV show, um, where you have a 
you know, exciting reveals, you have the subplots, um, you have uh, the criminal sort of being called to task. That's always a satisfying um, turn in a show for me. Um, and, you know, I think that having experienced that, even when she's playing a role, gives Cassidy some, you know, ammunition that she needs to actually do the real investigation in the book. That sounds like a great TV show. I love reading about all the episodes. But we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience right now, but invite you to subscribe to the podcast because we're going to continue our conversation with Alexandra Kleeman and hear questions from our live audience here at the Boulder Bookstore. But we have been reading Something New Under the Sun by Alexandra Kleeman, who's our guest at the Radio Book Club. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much. Bye, radio audience. <laughs> well, as we always do at the end of each radio episode, we announce the next book that we are reading. Oh my gosh, another winner, Arson, you have picked. Who are we reading now for the month of October? We're going to read Andrew Sean Greer, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, Less, and now his new book called Less is Lost. And we will be doing that live in front of an audience at the Canyon Theater, and that will be, that will be uh, recorded tonight in Radio Land. So um, if you're hearing this right now, you can get tickets to the, the Boulder Public Library for Andrew Sean Greer. And you can tune in on the fourth Thursday of October to hear that interview if you don't get to join us live. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the Radio Book Club. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.